This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please visit our website, myabc.church. Well, we have begun our journey uh, through the Bible thus far. God has been busy creating, and we left off last week with God resting from all the work of creating that he had been doing. God doesn't rest because he's tired. He rests because the work is finished. Everything is as it should be. Uh, That is, everything is exceedingly good. Now, before we dive into the next section of text, I want to highlight something that will be important for us as we continue our, our travels through the scriptures. Why did God create Now, we know from the rest of the Bible that he didn't create because he has needs that he wanted his creation to meet. It's not as though God had an itch he couldn't scratch, so he made the cosmos to take care of that for him. God didn't create because he needs anything. He doesn't need anything. Once there was only God and he was just fine. So why did God create? Well, let me tweak the question slightly. What did the universe do to deserve to exist. (laughs) What did planet Earth do to deserve to exist? What did life do, human life do, to deserve to exist? Well, the question's nonsensical, right? We weren't around to do anything. We didn't do anything to deserve life. This is creational grace. Creation is an incredible act of divine generosity. God didn't need us. He made space for us. This is divine generosity, divine hospitality. So to be made in the image and likeness of God means we are to replicate this kind of generosity and hospitality by making space for others. That means making space for people in our community. It means making space for people in our churches making space for people in our homes. This concept of creational grace will become important as we journey through God's word together. Let's take a look at today's text. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis. And uh, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 15 to 17, and then I'm going to skip over to chapter 3 and read the first seven verses. Chapter 2 Starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will certainly die. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. 
And the eyes of both of them were opened. They realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Mick Jagger famously belted out, when I'm driving in my car and the man come on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information that's supposed to fire my imagination. I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Because I try and I try and I try and I try. I can't get no. I can't get no. The song's rolling around in your head now, isn't it? The song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, was released in 1965 and hit the charts at number one in seven different countries, including the U.S. and the U.K. Clearly, the song touched a nerve. After the first two chapters of Genesis, we're convinced that God made everything exceedingly good. Creation is immaculate. The way life works is flawless. For Adam and Eve, it's paradise. But something went horribly wrong that eventually led the Rolling Stones to record, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. We're going to look at that today. The road to dissatisfaction travels through unfamiliarity with God's word, believing a lie about God, and elevating a good thing above God. The road to an empty life, the road to dissatisfaction travels through these three things. We're going to look at each of them this morning. First, the road to dissatisfaction travels through unfamiliarity with God's word. In verses 1 to 3, Satan creates an atmosphere of doubt. Did God really say, are you sure? There's no argument here. The serpent isn't crafting an intelligent defense of his position. He's just trying to plant a seed of doubt as to whether or not God said anything on this issue. And if he did say something, whether or not what he said is trustworthy. But he doesn't stop there. Not only does he question whether or not God said anything about the issue, he actually twists God's words. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree that's in the garden? That's not what God said. He said they could eat from every tree except for one. The serpent has craftily twisted God's words. He's saying to Eve, Eve, are you sure about that? Are you sure God said that? See, I don't, Eve, I don't think you heard him correctly. I don't think that's what, what he meant. Now, Eve attempts to correct the serpent. When she does so, she misses the mark too, right? When she repeats it back, she adds a phrase, and we must not touch it or we will die. That's not what God said either. So it's as if she's not exactly clear about the whole thing. The nature of temptation begins with the attempt to envelop God's word in a shroud of doubt by chipping away at its precision Temptation rarely begins by telling a bold-faced, opposite, contradictory lie. No, temptation begins by subtly eroding the details of Scripture, by getting you to question or to be unsure about what the Bible says. It's one of the many motivations that I have for us to study the Scriptures from beginning to end. I hope and prayer as we do this, we will uncover details in the Scriptures we didn't know were there. And in so doing, help build a protective barrier against the enemy's tactics. Austin Phelps writes of watching people in the Royal Gallery at Dresden sitting for hours before a single masterpiece painting. 
He writes this, weeks are spent every year in the study of that one work of Raphael. Lovers of art cannot enjoy it to the full till they have made it their own by prolonged communion with its matchless form. He tells of a conversation he had with one of the painting's admirers. And this admirer had said that he had spent years looking at this one painting, years, and yet he still found it possible to discover some new beauty or new joy in it. How much more should we give this kind of patient attention to Scripture? I'm of the persuasion, I don't know about you, that there are more beauties and joys to be discovered in God's Word than any painting. So if people find communion with the details of a painting mesmerizing, what would, what would people discover about God in communing with Him through His Word to us? The story in front of us shows us the lack of that led to an empty life. The road to dissatisfaction travels through unfamiliarity with God's Word. Second, the road to dissatisfaction involves believing a lie about God. You will not certainly die, says the serpent. God knows that when you eat of it, you will become like God. Now, this is an outright lie. In essence, the serpent is saying to them, you know, I've been watching you for some time now, and I have to say, I feel very sorry for you. You know, God, yeah, I don't I hate to be the one to break it to you, but he doesn't really have your best in mind. He knows that if you go out on your own, you're going to be so much more than you are now. God knows if you go out on your own, you are going to reach a potential he doesn't really want to see happen. And what's the lie? The serpent doesn't go after the existence of God. He doesn't try to convince them an atheistic worldview is the way to go. He doesn't try to overwhelm them with persecution or tragic suffering. Now, the prince of darkness, the messenger from hell, goes after one thing. He says, if I can get this one thing, I've got them right where I want them. If I can destroy this one thing, I can destroy the relationship with God, each other, and all of creation. And what is that one thing Satan goes after? He goes after the goodness of God. He says, you can't really trust that God wants what's best for you. You can't really trust that he's good. Satan's tactic is to get you to buy into a lie that God is not really looking out for your good. That he doesn't really have your best in mind. See, once you start doubting the goodness of God, you're going to start thinking to yourself, if I obey God about this or that, I won't be happy. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. They started to doubt the goodness of God and they thought to themselves, you know what, if we obey God about this tree, we are not going to be happy. If we obey God about this tree, we are going to be miserable. This is the way he works in us. He gets us to doubt the goodness of God, to believe a lie that God is not good, and that inevitably leads us to say to ourselves, you know what, if I obey God about this issue or about that issue, I won't be happy. I'll be miserable. 
There are numerous areas of the Christian life where this shows up. One of those is money. The message Satan tries to get us to mumble to ourselves is, if I'm radically generous with my money, I'm going to miss out. I won't be happy. If I'm radically generous with my money, I'm going to lose my status. I'm going to lose security. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about generosity. The tithe was explicitly tied to God's covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Leviticus 27. We're no longer under that covenant. We're under a new covenant in Jesus. Additionally, the tithe was bound up with the tabernacle, temple, the Levitical priesthood. That's not where we are in salvation history. So I don't think Christians are required to tithe, to give 10%. However, I would say we are given every reason to give more than 10%. The covenant that we are under in Christ is a better covenant with more grace. So I think our giving ought to reflect that. Christians today have ample grounds to outgive the Old Testament saints who were tithers. We should value our riches in Christ so highly and our freedom from sin so highly, our gospel so highly, that we would simply love to give. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 makes a convincing case for this. I don't have time to unpack both of those chapters, but I'll give you a couple of verses that serve as a snippet. The Apostle Paul writing in 2 Corinthians 9 says this, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Christian Smith, who's a Christian sociologist, did a massive study on the subject of generosity. And he published his findings in a book entitled The Paradox of Generosity. In his surveys and interviews with Americans on the issue, he discovered a correlation between financial generosity and what he calls the five measures of well-being. They are happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. Those Americans who consistently practice giving away 10% or more of their income experience greater personal happiness, physical health, stronger sense of purpose in life, avoidance of symptoms of depression, and greater personal interest in growth. Basically, the summary statement of his findings was this. He said, generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than those they gave. I wonder if that's what Paul was talking about. Those who sow generously reap generously. My parents, growing up, taught their children at a very early age, their tactics, maybe I'll save for other time, we'll get a chuckle out of those, but they taught us sacrificial and generous giving in our home. So as I can say, as someone who has practiced giving away at least 10% to whatever church I've been a part of, I can honestly say I've never felt miserable in doing so. Satan's tactic, however, is to convince you that if you obey God on the issue of generosity, you won't be happy. 
recognize that for what it is. That's not the prompting of God's spirit. That's the whispers of the devil. A second area where this temptation tactic occurs is the area of sex. If I obey God on the issue of sex, I won't be happy. If I obey God on the issue of sex, I'll be miserable. But what does God want in regards to it? Christopher Yuan, whom I've had the privilege to spend some time with, wrote a book entitled Out of a Far Country, A Gay Son's Journey to God, A Broken Mother's Search for Hope. In this book, Christopher uses the phrase holy sexuality. There are two ways to practice holy sexuality. Within the context of a marriage between a man and a woman, and chastity. Those are the two ways to practice holy sexuality. And he's right. But the nature of temptation works to convince us that if we stay within those parameters, we're going to be miserable. This is what the enemy does. He, he subtly and he craftily flips the good on its head to make it look repulsive. And then he takes the repulsive and he subtly and craftily flips it on its head to make it look good. Several years ago, I was doing some premarital counseling with a couple in their 20s and and I was getting their stories and just listening to them. And, and the gal, this, this uh, gal was, was sharing her story. Her name's Natalie. And at one point in her story, she, she, she said to me that between the ages of 16 and 21, she had been with 14 different boys. I said, well, as long as we're here, can I stop you there? Can we talk about this? I said, Natalie, what, what were you looking for? What were, you, what were you hoping to find by doing this? She said, and I quote her, I thought it would make me feel special when a boy loved me that way. I said, did it? She said, no. That's why there were 14 boys. I always thought running into the arms of the next one would do it for me. I knew as she sat in front of me that she'd experienced a transformation in her life. Something had really happened. And so I asked her, I said, how did this vicious cycle stop? This is about a 24-year-old. This is what she said to me. She said, I ran into the arms of Jesus. And now I don't need to run anymore. Because the very thing I was looking for, I found in him. She married her fiancé, Zach. I had coffee with Zach about a year and a half ago. They were doing great. A couple of kids enjoying a new life that God had made for them. It doesn't always turn out this way. The way in which the enemy works ought to anger us. He subtly, craftily flips the good on its head to make it look repulsive. And then he subtly, craftily flips the repulsive on its head to make it look good. 
So through the enemy's attempt to disorient us, we need to remember the God who made the universe and everything in it is good, and he doesn't ask us to do anything that isn't also good. Third, the road to dissatisfaction includes elevating a good thing above God. What's the deal with this tree? What is the deal with this tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, the very first sin did not go down the way we typically think of sin. When we think of sin, we think of bad things, murder, adultery, stealing, right? That's not what happened here. This tree that Adam and Eve were not supposed to eat from was a good thing. It was not an evil thing. Genesis 1.31, God looked at everything he had made, including this tree, and he said that this is exceedingly good. The tree is a good thing. Our first mistake was not murder. Our first mistake was not adultery. Our first mistake was taking something good and making it ultimate. See, the essence of sin is not primarily doing bad things or breaking the rules. It's taking good things and making them your Savior and Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, when we take good things and use them to give us significance and meaning in life, those things, whatever they may be, are operating as your Lord and Savior. Could be your career, could be your spouse, could be your children, could be money, could be affection. Sin is taking good things and turning them into ultimate things. It's using good things to give you significance and meaning. One of the main characters in the movie, Chariots of Fire, is Harold Abrahams. There's a scene in the movie where he's in the training room getting ready for the finals of the 100-meter dash in the 8th Olympiad. And he's in there with his teammate and friend, Aubrey. And Harold becomes really reflective in this scene. It's a profound scene in the movie. He becomes very reflective, and he, he turns to his friend, his teammate, Aubrey, and this is what he says. He says, you, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind, a content man. That's your secret, contentment. I'm 24, and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit, yet I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. And now in one hour's time, I'll be out there again. I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? devastates your world is taking good things and using them to justify your existence. Pastoral ministry, I've encountered parents absolutely devastated over how their kids have turned out, so devastated that they've needed a lot of help to regain their footing in life. Now, parenting's a good thing. Being a good parent is a good thing. But if your significance and meaning in life comes from being a good mom or dad, you've turned it into an ultimate thing. If being a good parent is how you experience significance in life, here's my question. What happens if your kids don't turn out the way you want them to? What happens if you fail? What happens if you fail at the very thing you're looking to in order to justify your existence? 
Adam and Eve show us what happens. We hide from people. We run from God. We turn away in shame, riddled with guilt, discontent, empty, and completely unfulfilled. So there's something very ironic about what happened in the garden. The very thing Adam and Eve thought would make everything better actually made them worse. And we relive this every day. We're constantly telling ourselves, if only. If only I had that, then I could be happy. If only I had that, then I could be content. If only I had more money, if only I had a better job, if only this, if only that. We bring it into the church. If only the church would do things this way or that way, then I could be content here. If only, if only, if only. The game never ends. So what's your tree? What's your tree? Cynthia Heimel, a New York City writer, made a living getting to know and write about people in the entertainment business. Through the course of her career, she got to know some very famous actors and actresses, names that we'd all recognize, but she got to know them before they became famous. As she observed their lives over a period of time, she wrote the following. When they were struggling like us, saying, if only I had that, then I would be happy and content. They were like the rest of us. They were stressed and they were anxious. But when they got the deepest desire of their hearts... They became awful, unstable, angry, manic. They became less happy than they used to be. They wanted fame, and when they got it the next morning, they wanted to overdose. Why? asks Heimel, who's not a Christian. But she makes an astute observation. She writes this, all their fantasies had been realized. Yet the reality was still the same. If they were miserable before, they were twice as miserable now because that giant thing they were striving for, that feigned thing that was going to make everything okay, had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. When they realized the deepest desire of their hearts didn't satisfy, they became miserable. Harold Abrahams, after making the statement I read for you earlier, ends up winning the gold medal. He goes out there and he wins the gold medal in the finals of the 100-meter dash at the Olympics. Did it justify his existence? In one of the next scenes, after he's won, He's in the bar, a bit inebriated, staring off into the distance as if to say, is this all there is? It's exactly what happened in the garden. What's your tree? Every one of us has a tree. Most of us have forests. What's yours? If it's someone or something other than God, it's going to disappoint and leave you empty. Let me put this different way. If your contentment is tied to something that can be taken away, you're setting yourself up to be singing a duet with Mick Jagger.
We're forever in pursuit of some giant thing that will make our lives all we imagine they could be when all the while it's sitting in front of us. What is that? Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What is rest? It's the satisfaction and contentment your soul longs for. Talking with a woman at the well, he said, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. What is the the quenching of thirst that Jesus talks about here? It's the satisfaction and contentment your soul longs for. This is a theme replete throughout scripture. We're gonna discover just how replete it is. And because it's a theme replete throughout scripture, it should be a theme replete throughout Alliance Bible Church. And by God's grace, it will be. Since coming to ABC a little over a year ago, I've been asked on occasion, so, you know, where are we going? You know, where are we headed? What's the vision? Let me answer the question. This is what we're going to be about. We're going to be about captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know where we're going? That's where we're going. We're going to be about captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our vision, to see every generation from youngest to oldest captivated not with trends or traditions, not with cultural artifacts or political clout, not with popularity or approval, not with wealth or pleasure, but captivated with the gospel of Jesus Christ And as a result, to experience the deep and lasting satisfaction only Jesus and the gospel can provide. Christopher Parkening, um, being a musician, a guitarist, the name uh, resonates with me. He's considered to be, by many, the world's greatest classical guitarist. By the age of 30, he had accomplished everything. And to add on to that, he was also a fly fishing champion. Yeah, I don't get it either. However, in all of his success, he couldn't find happiness. At one point in his life, he became so weary of the performances and weary of all this that he bought a ranch out in the middle of nowhere. But instead of finding whatever it was he was looking for there, his life became more and more empty. Reflecting on this, he wrote this, if you arrive at a point in your life where you have everything that you've ever wanted and thought would make you happy, and it still doesn't, then start questioning things. It's the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. I had that, and I thought, well, what's left? Well, visiting some friends, he attended a church he ended up coming to faith in Christ. Parking developed a hunger for scripture. He was struck by 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. He said, I realized there were only two things I knew how to do. Fly fish for trout and play guitar. Well, I am playing the guitar today absolutely by the grace of God. I have a joy, a peace, and a deep down fulfillment in my life I never had before. 
My life has purpose. I've learned firsthand the true secret of genuine happiness. Christian, let me tell you something. This is something you have to rediscover every day. Coming to Jesus in the gospel is not a one-time transaction that took place some back in time in your past, and now you move on to other stuff. If you want to find lasting satisfaction, you have to return to the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. Like Raphael's painting in the Royal Gallery, the gospel holds within it beauties and joys you have yet to uncover. And they're waiting for you. They're waiting for you to discover them. To be captivated with them. Beauties and joys of the gospel are waiting to give you what only the gospel of Jesus Christ can give you. Deep, lasting satisfaction. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, our hearts are idol factories. We produce them in bunches, we prop them up every day and pursue them with the hopes that once we grab hold of them, they will quench our thirsty souls. But time and again, they fail to deliver on what they promise. So God, we plead with you to grab hold of our attentions, grab hold of our energy, grab hold of our hearts, our minds, our imaginations. We plead with you to enthrall us with Jesus Christ who can alone provide rest for the weary, who alone can quench our thirst, who alone can make our lives worth living. In a world with countless things that vie for our allegiance, God, we want to be captivated with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, to rest in that. And we pray these things because there is only one who deserves all the honor and praise. And that's the sweet name of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.